the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Hi, everybody. Ron Geyer, End Time Insights. I'm all excited. I've been waiting to get to the book of Revelation where Jesus talks about the seven churches. This is so important. So, so, so important. You know, somebody asked me the other day, Ron, what would you say to a baby Christian? How would you get him started? And number one, I would teach them about their position in Christ. It's so important that they know who they are in Christ. They are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And then I would tell them about their position in the world. This your position in Christ. This is what you are to be doing in the world. This is why God has given you his Holy Spirit inside you so that you could be an effective witness for him in the world. And then I would teach him how to fall in love with the word of God, that their position in the word, hallelujah, they serve the word. Jesus Christ is the word of God. And then I would teach them Romans, read the book of Romans, read the book of John, the gospel of John, and then go to uh, Revelation chapter two and three and learn what the head of the church, Jesus, wants to say to his church. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not your pastor's church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to start in Revelation two. Verse 1, I read verse 1 last week because it's a great opening verse. I'll read it again. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Remember, I told you about that because I wanted you to get the understanding that the seven stars, we learned that in the last chapter, the seven stars are the seven pastors of the churches, and he holds them in his right hand, and we're going to see how significant that is probably next week when we get into the fault of the church at Ephesus. And then he also walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which are the seven churches, and we explain that he's actually doing an outward observation, walking around the churches, peripathos. He's actually doing an outward observation, and he's doing an inward examination. He's walking not only outside the church, checking our behavior, but he's on the inside, checking our hearts. He's walking in the midst. He's walking right in the gut of these seven churches of my church and of your church. He is there and he is there because it's his church. He wants to watch out. He wants to make sure everything is done in order, decently and in order. He wants to make sure that we're giving place to the Holy Spirit of God. He wants to protect us from false doctrine, false teaching. He wants to protect us from those that would infiltrate the church and try to take many away from the kingdom of God. So today we're going to pick up on verse two in Revelation chapter two. I know thy work, saith the Lord, and I know thy labor, and I know thy patience, and I know how you cannot bear them which are evil, and how you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. That's verse 2. There's only seven verses 
in uh, chapter 2 that deal with the book of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. We'll go verse at a time. They are so rich. We're going to break down some of these Greek words. They're going to knock your socks off with what they reveal to you about the level of commitment God is looking for the people that belong to his church. Let me give you a couple of fun facts about Ephesus, though, a little bit of the history. You know, we could write a book detailing the importance of the church at Ephesus. Rick Renner actually did. It's a great book. But here I'm just going to highlight for you some of the applicable truths about the church at Ephesus. Understand these churches, the seven churches, were in western Turkey. They were on the border, and they were the seven churches. They go from south up to north, out to the west, out to the east a little bit, and then back down south. And the very first church that you came off of the, I think it was the Mediterranean, you came in from the Mediterranean, and there was Rome, it connected Rome, and you would come from Rome, and you would travel uh, the waterway, and Ephesus and Smyrna were both port cities, but you would come into Ephesus. And it was the first church that was started over there. And it was started by Paul. And Timothy became the early pastor of the church. So you could literally say that this letter is written to Timothy to give the message to the church at Ephesus. Jesus starts with Ephesus as he should. It was first. When one came from Rome, they entered the port city of Ephesus. Paul brought the gospel to the city. This church actually was called the Light of Asia. There were over a quarter of a million people living there during the time of Paul, and this city housed the largest body of believers in the region, perhaps as many as 100,000. It was a missionary church, or rather an apostolic church. All the other churches in Asia came from this church. Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea were all churches born out of the missionary efforts of apostles at Ephesus. Some estimates placed the Christian population nearly 100,000. It was the strongest. It was the largest. It was the brightest church in all of Asia Minor. It had such leaders as Paul. It had Timothy. Even John eventually became the pastor over the entire region. He settled there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was a place of great Christian ministry, as well as a great place of great demonic persecution by the emperor. The Roman emperor at that time was Domitian. The goddess Diane had a temple there that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. There was a great, great light there. The presence of God was strong in the church. But there was also great darkness there as darkness and light fought for dominance in the region. Matter of fact, when Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 5, But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's writing, but you, Timothy, this is a word of contrast against the people mentioned in the previous sentences. Though others turned aside to fables and false teaching, Timothy was to be even more dedicated to doing what God wanted him to do. Their presence was to make him more dedicated, not more discouraged. But Timothy was getting discouraged. They got off to a great start, and then the persecution started coming. And he was young, and he had some doubts about, Lord, am I on the right track? What's going on here? And he was fearful at times. And yet, it's important that we understand. Calvin writes this, The more determined men become to despise the teaching of Christ, the more zealous should godly ministers be to assert it, and the more strenuous their efforts to preserve it in its entirety. Then Paul continues to write, Timothy, be watchful in all things. Timothy could not fulfill the ministry unless he kept careful attention to what was going on. Being watchful in all things. Every good shepherd has their eyes open. 
Paul told Timothy, you're going to have to endure afflictions. You know, ministry is just like life. There are afflictions to be born with. For some of this, it's disturbing. The thought because that there may be ministry would be a beautiful spiritual experience, one victory after another. There are plenty of wonderful blessings in serving God, but there are also afflictions and sufferings that must be endured. And then I'm getting back to my main point. Do the work of an evangelist. Ephesus was the evangelical center for Western Asia. This implies that Timothy perhaps was not really gifted in evangelism. He may not have been called to an evangelist. We know he was the pastor of the region. Not every pastor is an evangelist. But he still had to faithfully do that work as a preacher of God's word. And then closing in that scripture, Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Paul gave a similar command to the Archippus Colossians, uh, and he knew what it was to fulfill one's own ministry in some sense. And so that was Paul's encouragement to Timothy in the midst of his persecutions while he was at Ephesus. We'll give you more information about Ephesus as we go on, but I want to get back to the teaching. This is so fabulous. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Your understanding of what a Christian lifestyle should look like is going to be just challenged and raised to a new level when we get done with today's lesson. Verse 2 again, unto the angel of the church, we can say unto Timothy, write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We got that. Timothy is the messenger. The pastor is the messenger. He is called to bring the message that God gives him to the church. That's why you see pastors coming up there. Well, God gave me this message. That is absolutely correct. It's a message from God. It comes from God to the pastor. In chapter 1, John saw Jesus with the seven stars, the seven churches, in his right hand. Here Jesus reveals that they are not just sitting in his right hand, but he holds them in his right hand. The Greek word for hold is kriteo. It means to hold with strength and vigor, to seize with power. These pastors are held strongly in his right hand. These churches are held in a strong, masterful grip. This is not a holding hands like lovers in a park walking. Jesus has grabbed hold of these pastors, and he is not letting go. It's as if our life depended on it, or if letting go would cause destruction to come upon us. Jesus knows that. If we would only know the same. Like a parent holding the hand of a small child. Who has a tighter and a stronger grip? The parent does. It's the same way with the church of the living God. The right hand of God, not the left hand. The right hand of God always signifies salvation and strength. We talked about walking in the midst. He's doing an outward observation and an inward examination. And then, of course, the seven golden candlesticks. Lampstands would actually be a better word. Candlesticks burn out when the wick burns out. But lampstands, there's a wick in there and you keep filling the lamp with oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of the sevenfold Spirit of God. Okay, verse two, I know thy works and thy labor and I know your patience. Okay, these three things. I know your works. I know your labor. And I know your patience. Jesus knows. The Greek word for knows is oida, O-I-D-A. And it means to see or to behold or to perceive or in a sense to delightfully view. It's good to know that Jesus has pleasure when we're doing the things that he told us to do. It kind of infers one is scrutinizing or examining something. It also infers that this viewing has led one to firsthand knowledge. Jesus is saying, nobody told me about your works, guys. I've watched you. I know what you're doing because I'm in the midst of your seven churches. I'm walking around the outside. I know this. I have a personal revelation of what's going on in your church. He saw it for himself. 
A better way would translate this would be, it makes it more personal. The way it's written is really, I know the works of you. That's how he's really saying it. Because every church had works, and he's not saying this is a generic work. He goes, but uh, Ephesus, I know the works of you. I know what you're doing. My church, WHCC, it's got a unique work which they're required to do. Jesus knows that work also. Your church has a unique work required of it. You are to discover that work and then help your pastors and the leadership team fulfill that assignment. I know thy works. And then he says, and I know thy labor. You're going to love this. I know thy labor. I got to take a minute. I got to thank Rick Renner for doing the research and breaking down the Greek words and doing a study of the Greek words to actually get to the exact meaning of what Jesus is saying. Stuff loses its impact when we bring it into English. There are just sometimes no words like loving kindness, for instance. There is no word in the Greek loving kindness for just one word. It takes two English words to translate what that one Greek word means, and it means loving kindness. It's it's an awesome revelation of the feelings that God has for us. Back to Revelation. The Greek word for labor here is kopos, K-O-P-O-S. It describes the hardest, don't forget, I know thy labor, kopos. It describes the hardest, most wearisome type of labor. The Amplified Translation renders the word as toil. It's toil that leads to fatigue. We don't get that in American Christianity. It depicts a person who gives everything to a project, to a task, to a God-given assignment. That person is striving and working with every fiber of his or her being. The word kopos implies working to the point of exhaustion. And it's not just a physical effort. It's a spiritual effort. It's a mental exercise. I mean, you are undertaking something that is taking everything that you have and it's leaving you drained, empty, and fatigued. This effort was not just expected of the church at Ephesus. No? No, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul, writing to us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be ye immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That same word, kopos, is used here for labor. And yes, we are to be working for God to the point of exhaustion. This just wasn't something the Church of Ephesus was doing. This labor, this effort, is the required effort by every church member in every congregation throughout the world. I love that. What else did he say? He said, I know your works, and I know your labor, and I know your patience. If you love Labor, you're going to love patience. Get this stuff. This, you know, you don't get this stuff in the Sunday classes. You got to, you got to dig this stuff out, man. You got to hunt it down. You got to search in the word as if it's gold, as if it's silver. I mean, this is precious, precious stuff. Jesus also knows the patience of the saints that were working at the church at Ephesus. The word in the Greek is hupomone. It's a word used in the New Testament. It's used several places. It's a common theme for the saints. They are to be patient. But it goes much deeper than our carnal Western understanding of what patience is. Once again, Rick Renner, thank you, sir. A master student of the Greek breaks it down like this. In the military sense, hupomone, patience, pictures soldiers who are ordered to maintain their positions in the face of opposition. Maintaining their position in the face of opposition. That's a great word for the church. We need to maintain our position where God has placed us in the face of opposition. To me, that means we're not supposed to close our churches. We'll come back. It suggests one who defiantly sticks it out regardless of the pressures mounted against him. 
The churches did not show any hupomone during the ungodly government mandates to shut us down and to keep us from preaching and worshiping and laying hands on the sick. It is staying power, or it is power that hangs in there. It is the attitude that holds out, holds on, and outlasts. It perseveres, and it hangs in there, and it never gives up. It refuses to surrender to obstacles, and it turns down every opportunity to quit. You know, the world told us to quit back in March, and we said, okay. It pictures someone who's under a heavy load, but who refuses to bend, who refuses to break, or refuses to surrender. Why? Because that person is convinced that the territory, the promise, or the principle that's under assault in their lives rightfully belongs to him. You know, this reminds me of Abraham, Romans 4.1, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. We need to have that understanding. A, this is the church of God. And when the world tries to dictate to our behavior, when the world tries to dictate to when and how we can meet and what we can do when we're in there, we have got to exemplify patience, hupomone. We've got to rise up and say, no, you know, the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, the pillar and the ground of truth. There is no other truth out there than the truth that the church brings. And when they shut us down, the world is without truth. Why did that happen? Because the world is being deceived, because the news media, because the government wanted to trick you that the coronavirus was deadlier than it was. Now they're trying to trick you that the so-called vaccine, which is nothing less than a gene replacement therapy experiment, it is not a vaccine. They're trying to get you to fall for that. And the church needs needs to rise up. We have truth. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. Truth starts here, it grows here, and it comes from here. We are to give the world the truth. What a far cry from the church today. Abraham, fully persuaded. Are you fully persuaded that God said what he said, that he'll do what he said, because he's capable of doing what he said he would do? You know, I am persuaded. I believe. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he is able to keep those things which I have committed unto him against that day. That day was March, when the government said shut down. That was that day that Jesus is talking about. That's okay. You'll have many more opportunities. There's many more that days coming your way. Just stick around. You'll see. Hats off to the saints at Ephesus, though. Jesus congratulated them because despite the great persecution brought upon them by the evil emperor Domitian, they did not give in to the pressure. There's two more commendations coming for this church. By the way, you know, when you think about the seven churches, you always seem to associate them with their failures, right? For instance, we knew that the church at Ephesus, what was the great failure of the church at Ephesus? That they had left their first love. Remember that? Of course. Well, that's all you hear about the church at Ephesus. And yet at the end of the day, this was a great church. This was a fabulous church. Jesus Christ honoring the church. He commended them for their labors. He commended them for their works. He commended them for their patience. Now he's going to commend them for two more things. Thou cannot bear them which are evil. This is in verse 3, I think. Let me see. Yes, walketh in the midst. Verse 3, I didn't read it to you yet. Where is it? Oh, I'm sorry. That's still in verse 2. And thou hast tried, you cannot bear them that are evil, and you have tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and you have found them liars. So two more commendations coming for the church at Ephesus. So in verse 2, we get five commendations by the Lord Jesus for the church at Ephesus. But you never hear about that. You only hear about the fact that the church at Ephesus is the church that left its first love. Okay, the word for bear, you cannot bear them which are evil. This is a word that carries uh, some kind of responsibility with it. 
And I love that. The church at Ephesus felt responsible to confront the evil that came into the church. Can you say that about your church? What lessons there are here for us if we'll just take time, study the scriptures, read the word of God, and listen to the head of the church talk to us. So far, all he's done is brag on the church at Ephesus. He's patted them on the back. He's told them what a great job they're doing, and he's going to continue in that. This was a clean church, the church at Ephesus, a church that recognized the need for purity and doctrinal accuracy. You'll see more of that in a minute, but Ephesus was a big, powerful Christian body, and God entrusted them with great responsibility. Don't forget, they were going to be the center of the apostolic movement throughout the whole region of Asia, and they started with the church at Ephesus. They took their responsibilities very seriously. The Greek word here for evil is kakos, K-A-K-O-S, and it means evil. It means foul, vile, or destructive. It includes thoughts that are unacceptable, evil actions that are harmful or injurious, evil intent. There must have been people who were attempting to infiltrate this church at Ephesus. You know there were. If God sent Paul over there to start it so that he could evangelize Asia, then of course he was going to come under great spiritual attack. And for the purpose of destroying it, that's why these people were sent into the church. And Jesus said, you can't stand them that are evil. I love that. They weren't going to have any of it, this church. They recognized their position in Asia as gatekeepers. And they held and they guarded that position diligently. The second commendation came to them because you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. Remember, Ephesus, it was a port city. And when people came over from Rome, they had it land at Ephesus or Smyrna a few miles further north. It was the major, though, port city where travelers from Rome and Europe first entered Western Asia. God strategically designed Ephesus to be the open door for Christian ministry to the entire continent of Asia. That's the good news. The bad news was that darkness recognized that, and so they saw the same opportunity and all sorts of wickedness and sexual depravity found a home for itself here in Ephesus as well. Understand, the greater the darkness the greater the opportunity. We don't have that revelation here. We're too busy running from the darkness. Remember I told you, you don't run from the roar. You run to the roar. You run where the brave dare not go. You do not shut down when the world says shut down. You do not be quiet when the world says be quiet. You fight. The church shouldn't run from darkness. It's why we were created. It's where we are supposed to shine. Do we really want to be like Jesus? Remember Luke ten nineteen. Jesus said, Behold, I give you might. I give you power. I give you dominion over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. Behold, I give you might, power, and dominion. Where? Over all the power of the enemy. That's basically he's told you where to go. What do you mean he told me where to go? He told you to go. Go where? Go where the power of the enemy is manifesting. That's where I want you. I want you in the darkness. I want you shedding light into that darkness. But we wait for darkness to come to us or we run from it when it shows up. That has got to change. Matthew four sixteen. The people who sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. That was about Jesus when he came into the earth. God sent him into the darkness. He sent him into the dark places. Ephesus was a missionary-minded church. They were apostolic in nature. 
It's because of the ministry of Ephesus that the six other churches sprang up. If you could preach at Ephesus, you could preach anywhere. If you made it at Ephesus, man, if you withstood the the discerning spirits of those that were checking you out to see if you were a true apostle or not, if you withstood their examination, man, you were good to go anywhere. They sent you out, and immediately you went up north to Smyrna. For those who sought power or prestige in ministry, Ephesus is where you got it. Even so, the false also came with the real. People came saying they were apostles, and they weren't. How did Ephesus know this? Thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles, and you have found them lies. They tried them, and the Greek word is parazo, and it means to examine intently for the purpose of proving the fitness of someone or something. It's been used to describe the process whereby metals are heated to reveal and remove the impurities. The word was also used to test the veracity of coins that were made out of uh, metals back in those days to determine if they were real or they were confident. First John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. So we are supposed to be checking this stuff out in our own churches. Well, we're pretty much out of time. We're going to pick up on this also next week when we come back. We'll pick up on verse 3. And I just want to thank you for listening. I pray that God has given you understanding about what we're talking about. I pray the Spirit of God move in your life that you come to see Jesus better. You'll know him more than ever before because he loves you dearly. He loves his church and he will perfect that which concerns you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net.